to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens. I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today, dear listeners, Daniel and I have been discovering that uh, our lives are entirely in sync in that we've been both eating curry, we've been both up for most of the night, and we both have mild colds. I don't know how that happened, but it's, yeah, it's nice to know. I like a good spicy curry when you have a cold, though. I do, too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, we, uh, so this will be the Hacken and Coffin edition of Lost in the Wilderness. <laughs> uh, we are on chapter 31, which means we are only one chapter away from the Golden Calf. Things are I know. So we've been exciting. talking about this forever. I know. I know. I, uh, I especially have been living for this moment. Um, but first, chapter 31, which I also like because this is about artsiness, um, and that's my bag. Yes, yes. Actually, you're going to be very disappointed, though, because you'll soon discover that uh, uh, we have already passed over the golden calf. Oh, ooh, that's interesting. So uh, time is just an abstract concept, and we are floating in a timeless void. Time is relative. It's like that Dan yeah. Burns song. I don't know uh, Dan Burns. Oh, no, our first moment of not being in sync. Oh, well. Dan Burns, Jerusalem. This is my shout-out today. Everyone go Google Dan Burns, Jerusalem, and uh, uh, listen to it. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, if we could catch time in a bottle, we could keep going with this forever, but we should probably plunge right in. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I say we've skipped the golden calf because actually what we're going to see is Rashi says that everything that's happening here uh, occurs after the incident of the golden calf. So down at the foot of the mountain, they are building up the golden calf, but up on the top, a little while later, this is happening. Yes, exactly. Okay, got it. Um, so it's like one of those television programs that starts near the end, you know, those special episodes. And you're like, why is Castle in an alley with Kate yes. pointing a gun at him? And then the across the screen it says, three days earlier. Exactly. Exactly. I, I understand. Um, yeah. Yeah, Spielberg stole it from Rashi. Is really what's going on, <laughs> right? Just, just like he stole the plot for Jaws. Um, <laughs> okay, so jumping in, uh, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "And now you really should be reading this because we're going to hit some names here." So you, oh, you yes, will, the names. I'll do the butchered English, and you do the Hebrew. So, okay. and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "See, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah." So the name here is Betzalel. It's the uh, TZ. It's, it's called a Tzadi in Hebrew, but it's the same sound that we make in English at the end of a word. We don't typically mm. do it at the beginning, but like uh, bots, like, B-O-T-S, yeah. lots. Okay. It's that sound except at the beginning. Yep. Okay. Betzalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom and an understanding and in knowledge and in every task to devise plans, to work in gold and silver and in bronze and in stone cutting for settings and in wood carving to do every task. And I, look, I have set by him a holiab. Okay, jump in. That was good, other than it's a V at the end instead of a B. A holiab, son of Ahazamach. Yes. Achisamach. Achisamach. Good. Of the tribe of Dan. And in the heart of every wise-hearted man, I have set wisdom that they make all that I have charged you. See, I really, I really feel like we've, we've kept a lot of biblical names, but there needs to be a uh, resurgence of some of these old. Like, when was the last time you ran into a uh, Achisamach? You, you just don't meet a lot of them. You don't. You don't. Uh, not even at, like, the deli. <laughs> or when I'm taking a schwitz. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's really exactly. sad. Actually, you will meet some Bitzalels in Israel today. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay, so that one has made a comeback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, the, the sort of very prestigious, very well-regarded Arts Institute uh, in Israel is named oh, after this. makes sense. Of course, of course it would be. Of course it would be. Um, anyway, make all that I have charged you, the tent of meeting and the Ark of the Covenant and the covering that is upon it and all the furnishings of the tent and the table and its furnishings and the pure lampstand and all its furnishings and the incense altar and the burnt offering altar and all its furnishings and the laver and its stand and the service garments and the sacred garments for Aaron, the priest and the garments for his sons to be priests and the anointing oil and the aromatic incense for the sanctum 
as all that I have charged you, they shall do. So these two dudes are making all this stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, we've got a midrash here that says uh, it's not just the two of them. Uh, that oh. it is anyone who is touched by this idea of, you know, we might call it wisdom or talent, uh, but artsiness, anyone who's got that in their blood and in their uh, sort of uh, abilities. Yeah. Okay. So a creative spark is what we're looking for here. A creative spark. Yeah. I see it in my kids. It's really funny. I, I am not even a little bit artistic. I mean, just I, I don't observe uh, visual things. I don't see it. I don't, and my kids are already more artistic than I am. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, I am uh, actually a painter. So yes. that's kind of my other job. So for me, this is super exciting. Um, okay. So the, what we basically have then is two different artist colonies working to create these things. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, we talked about the artist colony last week too. Uh, the, the yeah. name of the area that used to be called hell. Right, right. But but they're not doing that there because we're all still out in the wilderness. So they are uh, working on it in the frequent rests between wanderings, I imagine. Yes, yes. Uh, or they will be. Right now, these are just the instructions. So we've got a lot of good uh, Midrashim here. So let's uh, jump back to verse 3 here for a second. Yeah. Uh, so if you, you look at verse 3, I've endowed him with the divine spirit of skill, ability, and knowledge. What are, what are the three words you have there? Uh, verse three, they are wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Okay. Uh, so, you know, how we translate these things, uh, is not always so clear, but the first of these words, which uh, you translated as wisdom and I've got skill. Well, uh, I didn't translate it. Robert Alter. Did. Robert Alter. Yeah. No. I don't want people going away thinking I can actually speak Hebrew. <laughs> I, I, I'm not worried that they're going to take that away. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes it's a softball right down the middle, you know? Uh, I know, I know. Um, okay, anyway, go on. <laughs> uh, so the first of these Rashi says, he's picking it up from a Midrash, uh, skill is what a person hears from others and learns. This is something you can pick up. This is something you are okay. taught. Uh, okay. The second of these, did you translate that as insight? Uh, skill and wisdom and knowledge, I believe. Yep. Uh, okay. Wisdom. Well, it's odd. Okay. Uh, spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Understanding. Understanding. I, I translated it as, or Robert Alter translated it as understanding. And my translation has insight. Uh, and both seem to work here because Rashi says that this, th these are the things that you figure out yourself. Right. You've okay. already got the base knowledge that you've learned from others, and then you are doing new work yourself, combining it in new and different ways. And that's what the second category is. And the third is uh, divine truth. So that, uh, that Pete, does he say it's the Holy Spirit, or is that you? Who's, who's no, 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 that's, that? that's actually Rashi's term. Interestingly, right, today, Jews would never use the phrase Holy Spirit. It just sounds yeah. Christian. Yep. Uh, Rashi means a totally different concept of it than the Christian concept of it. Uh, but, you know, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Holy Spirit was uh, a part of a Jewish lexicon. That is interesting. So what, what does Rashi mean by it? Does he mean a kind of Sophia wisdom or what, what exactly are we talking about here? Yeah, probably something like that. Uh, you know, some, some connection to the divine, maybe something, you know, it's not prophecy because the era of prophets is over. Uh, certainly. Uh -huh. Uh, but some sort of tapping into divine knowledge. Rambam Maimonides would call it the divine overflow. Um, ah, yeah, okay. Uh, so something intuitive, something um, kind of that that you're not quite sure how you got there, and yet there it is. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, for for Rambam, I think this concept would be ultimate truths of the universe that were always there. And you are just now describing mm. uh, sort of the, the way we think about physics or, you know, Einstein equals MC squared e equals MC squared was true long before Einstein noted it. Um, and in that sense, it's uh, divine knowledge. Okay. So knowledge of the, of the way things are. So uh, it's just occurring to me that, uh, the Holy Spirit, if it was part of Judaism, 
does that mean it was part of the the rabbinic tradition during Jesus's time? Like when he talks about the Holy Spirit, is he one of many rabbis who would have been talking about it? Interesting. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but I'm going to do some digging. Yeah. Well, and you know, when we get to Luke Acts, this would be important. So you can you can you know wait a while to do your digging, I suppose. But um, eventually, Rabbi, we will need your. You know, I would assume so, if only because Jesus is operating uh, in a Jewish context, right? That the to use our midrash here, the things that he's learned from others, he learned in a Jewish context. The insights that he had on his own, he le- he had in a Jewish context, and uh, the divine knowledge he certainly would have self understood as being. Uh, with the Jewish God. Right, right. So it would not at all be surprising if there was a lot of other talk of the Holy Spirit going around him because it was part of the knowledge that he was uh, adapting and making sense of. Yes, yes. Cool. Um, Okay, I will report back, though. Okay, great, great. Um, And then we have a midrash going on to verse six and all the wise hearted into whose hearts I've installed wisdom. So the midrash is an additionally otherwise hard people among you shall assist as well as everyone into whom I have instilled wisdom and all of them shall make everything I've commanded you. So this is where we get, it's not just these two guys. It is a school going along with them. Their studio, so to speak. Yeah. I, I sort of like this. Maybe I'm overreading it based on my uh, limited visual artistic skills, but I sort of like the idea that art is for everyone. Um, right. It, it was not just these uh, sort of great artists who were performing this work, but it was actually uh, uh, a work of folk art at some level too. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, I agree that art is for everyone. I was actually picture picturing more of like a, a Renaissance workshop, you know, where so many Renaissance artists have pieces ascribed to them. Uh, but in fact, they were probably done by somebody in their workshop. Oh, I like that. Okay. So, um, and then they just sign their name to them, you know, or they, they come in and do the finishing touches or something like that. And then they sign their name to them. It's LL's workshop. Yeah. yeah yep. And so that's how I'm thinking of it. Okay, so we have all this construction of things going on. Um, and the last uh, confusing thing is in verse 10 when it talks, we know all about the sacred garments for Aaron the priest. We know how gory and bloody they get. But what are service garments? The, yeah, exactly. So actually Rashi disagrees here. It seems that what we're dealing with, you know, logically would be Aaron's garments. We've just been studying all about them, it feels like, uh, uh, with no end for the last few weeks. Yep. Uh, but Rashi goes ahead and says that these are not the garments of the priesthood. Uh, he's using a, a, a very sort of precise grammatical reading that I won't bring us into. Uh, but instead he says, these are the garments of blue, purple, and crimson wool that are mentioned in the section dealing with the travels. This is uh, numbers chapter four. Uh, hmm. and that again, this is just an example of, the order and chronology that appears to exist in the Torah is not in fact uh, significant outside of our own reading. Yeah, I like that, but I also don't understand why people wouldn't be appointed to make Aaron's garments when we've just heard so much about them. Yes. And that seems reasonable too. Uh, Plus, uh, my family and I have been watching a lot of Project Runway, and, and <laughs> frankly, I think we got to give credit to the designers or it's due. This is hard stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, okay. So we get into our next section now. Yeah. Okay. So this is. Does that mean this is a different Torah portion, or is it part of the same portion? It is part of the same portion. Uh, all of these, most of last week, this week, next week, and the week after, are all part of the same Torah portion. Uh, okay. Uh, the the greatest Torah portion, my bar mitzvah portion, called Kitisa. Uh, but we know that we're in a new section, a new chapter, as it is, because verse twelve begins, "Vayomer Daniel Moshe lemor," and the Lord said to Moses, uh, which always if tells us. Torah, sorry, if this was your Torah portion, so this is long then. Like your Torah portion was huge. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I was uh, like, uh, was it uh, Tom Sawyer? Not Tom Sawyer. Yeah, Tom Sawyer gets everyone to paint the fence for him. Yeah. So my best friend, I convinced to read some Torah. I convinced my grandpa to read some Torah. My bar mitzvah, I gave it all out, did very little. It worked out nicely. Oh, you can do that. I like to think that I was building community. 
Um, sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. Sure you do. Just like there's a community here. Basically, you were fitting your actions to what we are reading here. You were like, Ahisama, uh, uh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> You're ahead, or no, not him, his, his son, his son yeah. Ohala, Ohala Yav, and you were handing out parts of the work to people in your in your workshop, in your Torah portion reading workshop. Exactly. Very nice. Way to make the deed fit the text. Okay, well, so do you want to read uh, starting at verse 12? Sure. Uh, and the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelite people and say, Nevertheless, you must keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout the ages that you may know that I, the Lord, have consecrated you. So this becomes really central to modern Judaism. Uh, You know, even when you look back 2,000 years ago, if you look at Roman sources, Mm -hmm. there were three things that Roman sources really focus in on when it comes to uh, the distinctive quality of the Jewish population in the empire. Uh, the, the first of these is the Sabbath, uh, that there were these funny people who one day a week uh, would not work, which is pretty unheard of during this era. Right. And this era, for that matter. But yeah. <laughs> we don't have to go into that. Yeah, I there's actually, I, I love this joke. There's a, a, you know, a guy, John, doesn't show up for work on Monday. His boss calls him up and says, hey, John, are you sick? And he goes, no, I'm, I'm at home waiting for the next Jew. He says, what? You're waiting for the next Jew? What? He goes, yeah, you know, Moses came. He said, I didn't have to work on Saturday. Jesus came. He said, I didn't have to work on Sunday. I'm at home. I'm waiting for the next Jew. (laughs) I like that joke. Um, So can we talk a minute about the jealousy of God? Because way back when when, uh, Moses was uh, fighting with Pharaoh, and then soon... Uh, after the the golden calf, one of the one of the reasons for doing things is so that God will be known to the nations, yes. right? This particular Yahweh Adonai, whatever, um, and, we'll, and we'll see that in the golden calf. Like God wants to destroy the people. Moses says, "What about your reputation with the nations?" And God relents. Um, so you know, Exodus is portraying a God who is very aware of social position. And status, and is this is this part of that, or maybe that's a misstatement? I don't know, but this feels a little no, like that. There's something here. There's something here to that. You know, the the other way of reading the same concept, I think, is for many religious people throughout the ages. One of the motivations for our behavior is so that people will know what Christians are like what Jews are like, what Muslims are like, what Hindu, right? Whatever, whatever the group that we're talking about. Uh, and that I think is the notion here that, right. One of the reasons you keep the Sabbath and actually Rashi overtly says this is so that, uh, non-Jews will see what is happening. Yeah. You're, you're a representative of your people, which speaking of which, let me just say, if there was one thing uh, that we all were to take from Judaism, I really believe it should be the Sabbath. Uh, yeah, when you do <laughs> when you do it right, it is so beautiful and it is so powerful to have 25 hours where you are just a part of the world and a part of creation and you are not controlling the world uh, and you are local and you are present and you are with the people that you are with uh, and you're not cooking and you're not doing work and you're not all of these sorts of things. It makes a lovely uh, palace in time, as Heschel said. Ooh, that is, that is a beautiful saying. Uh, in fact, let's name the episode that this is a house and time episode. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I wish, you know, that we still had something like that. You know, Christians of course had Sundays and blue laws and, and for a long time that was taken very seriously. But, uh, I think we've, we've really lost something deeply important. And actually, so, you know, one of the questions is why is this here, right? Right in the middle of this, uh, section dealing with how you make the garments and who's going to make it and all the other ritual stuff we've been dealing with. Why does it bring the Sabbath? Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the classic answers that actually becomes incredibly important is that the practical rules for what you are supposed to do and not do on the Sabbath are derived from the things that were done in the construction of the tabernacle. So, 
I take that to mean that making this tabernacle is super important, but even this you should pause from to uh, to observe the Sabbath. Is that exactly? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. The rabbis go through and uh, discover 39 independent categories of work that are done, and uh, so today everything that is prohibited on the Sabbath uh, for observant Jews is derived from one of the 39 categories of work that were done as a part of the building of the tabernacle that you wouldn't do on the Sabbath. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. So categories, presumably like uh, preparing food, preparing food, planting, tearing, uh, um, binding, all sorts of things like this. Okay. Well, that, that is pretty cool. So, so that's why the Sabbath section is here. It's a reminder that, okay, we're laying a whole bunch of work on you, but don't use that as an excuse to shirk the the Sabbath. Yeah. 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 You know, the other thing here too, is it's uh, in English, at least when we use the word work, we tend to mean the things that people pay us to do that we don't otherwise want to do. Yeah. Uh, and sort of in that sense, we associate it with labor. And yeah. this is not the idea here. There's all sorts of laborious things you can do on the Sabbath. Uh, it's the work of creation that you don't do on the Sabbath. That six days of the week, we are to be creators of the universe around us, co-creators with the divine, if you want. Mm-hmm. And on the Sabbath, yeah. we step back and we are just a part of creation rather than the masters of it. Uh, that is... So it's a call to humility in a certain way. Yeah, it's a call to humility, to smallness. Uh, yeah, yeah. I often think, right, like, how would environmentalism be different if everyone in the world was forced once a week to be forced is a bad word, but right. Um, but once a week, 18 minutes or at sundown, they changed their behavior. And the next day when the stars came out, they changed their behavior that you had to be that in touch with the cycles of the natural world. Hmm. When it's dark, it's dark and you don't get to make fire or flip a switch to turn on a light. When it's light, it's light, right? Um, it's powerful. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it'd be a much more dangerous world in some ways. <laughs> you wouldn't want to go out if it was all dark. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, it, it, it would make a, it would make a tremendous difference. Um, okay. So here's the Sabbath. Uh, should we go on? Should we read a little more? Yeah. Uh, you want to read? Sure. Where did we stop? Um, verse 13, maybe. Okay. Okay. From verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, saying, And you speak to the Israelites, saying, Yet my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you for your generations to know that I am the Lord who hallows you, and you shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Those who profane it are doomed to die, for whosoever does a task on it, that person shall be cut off from the midst of his people. So this is That's interesting. True story, by the way. Everyone who has ever violated the Sabbath has died. That... That is really surprising because, you know, in my tradition, people don't die at all. <laughs> so <laughs> I think you got a problem here. <laughs> I, I might be changing teams. Uh, 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 but this is social death in a way, the way it's described, right? Yeah. So, you, you know, the rabbis divide this up and they say that it's a death and it's ultimately only done by God. And that they negate that as they do almost every incident of what looks like capital punishment. Uh, but the second piece, that person shall be cut off from among his kin sounds like a brutal punishment unless you think of it descriptively rather than proscriptively in which, uh-huh. you know, there's a classic saying by a guy named Shalom Alechem that, uh, more than the Jewish people have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jewish people. Yeah. And there's a real truth to this, uh, that in many ways, the fundamentals of Jewish community are built around the Sabbath. Hmm. Yeah, so in a way, this isn't really a punishment. It's just a statement. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you are cut off from your people, right? Uh, nothing nothing more needs to happen. Like, no further action needs to be taken. You have already... You've already done it. ...de facto chosen to be cut yes. off. Yes. Got it. Um, now, in terms of our modern world and practicality today, it's a different discussion, but, yep. Okay. 
from verse 15. Six days shall tasks be done, and on the seventh day an absolute Sabbath, holy to the Lord. Whosoever does a task on the Sabbath day is doomed to die. So that is stated twice. By the way, Rashi's point of a uh, complete Sabbath here is that it means you can't even cook food. Okay. So no no changing of uh, flesh into meat to eat. No uh, boiling of vegetables. No, exactly. Nothing. Nothing that fundamentally changes an item. You can warm things, but you can't cook things. Okay, uh, And this is today one of the most distinctive things, if you uh, are ever a part of a community that is observing the Sabbath, uh, that you see. All of the food is already done. Uh, so but that doesn't mean you're eating it cold. No, no, no. You've got warmers. You've got, you know, all those sorts of things. But, uh, yeah, so, for instance, in my life, Friday afternoons are spent cooking for the next day. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, okay. Israelites shall keep the Sabbath to do the Sabbath for their generations, a perpetual covenant. Be between me and the Israelites, it is a sign for all time, but six days did the Lord make heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased and caught his breath. Ooh, that's a nice state. Ooh, I love that. That's what he's saying at Robert Alter. Yeah. Caught his breath. Um, and, and I'm going to sh- keep going to, to verse 18, because then we're going to hit a whole series of Midrash, uh, which will get super interesting. So... And God gave Moses what God, when God had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the covenant, tablets of stone written by the finger of God, by the finger of God. All right. So of the, of the two sheets of Midrash you provided, one whole sheet is on verse 18. (laughs) So there's a lot to this. Um, So we've already talked about how the chronological order is not really adhered to. Um, that this is happening after the calf has been made. But there, there is some meaning to that, right? Uh, looking at the Midrash Rabbah. Um, yeah, so the Midrash compares this to a king. This is one of the classic genres of Midrash. Um, it is usual for... The comparison to a king genre? Exactly, exactly. God is okay. the king, as the earthly king. Uh, it is usual for an earthly king to bestow gifts on his subjects and furnish supplies for them as long as they are loyal to him, being then obliged to support them. But as soon as they rebel against him, God forbid, this king has no obligation whatsoever towards them and immediately cuts off their supplies as a penalty for denying his royal authority. With God, however, it is not so. For while they were busy provoking God to anger below, meaning at the base of the mountain with the golden calf, God was occupied in heaven with bestowing upon them a Torah of life. Mm-hmm. So the fact that these two things are happening simultaneously or the calf is happening in the midst of this ends up being a sign of God's grace. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not a word we use much in Judaism, but yeah, yeah, I think absolutely it's grace. Okay. And uh, what does that God forgive about? Uh, when was the Midrash Rabbah being written? Uh, you know, probably about 1,500 years ago. 1,500 years. So we're talking somewhere in the five or 600s AD. And where was it being written? Probably Babylon. Uh, you know, the Midrash Rabbah, uh, Rabbah here means sort of great or big. right? Uh, so mm-hmm. all that this really means is it's the big collection of Midrash as opposed to the small ones which have different names. Okay. Uh, so uh-huh. the big collection is obviously a collection of all sorts of different Midrashim that come from all sorts of different eras too. So we're not entirely sure. Okay. Okay. Cause it feels like uh, that could not have been, ri- well, I mean, it could be written in like the 19th century, but then it would be very different, right? It would be somebody living under an autocracy who is trying to um, say something radical without pissing off the mm-hmm. authorities. And maybe that was the case, <laughs> you know, Babylon, year 600. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always the well. case, right? Uh, the, the book of Daniel is that way. The book of Daniel is talking about the uh, the Greek occupation, but placing it in the context of the Babylonians for exactly that reason. Yeah. And, I mean, if we look at this politically, it is um, it is radical, right? Because the covenant that God is making is not like the social contract that a king or a president or a government would make with the, the people um, because 
government, because, you know, as, as Midrash says, governments can just choose to stop serving the people. The people stop serving the government, but God does not seem inclined to stop serving. These no, people. right. This, this is a, this is an eternal covenant seems to be the idea here. You don't get to opt out of it ever. Yeah. Uh, though, yeah. interestingly, Although, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, put a pin in that, dear listeners, till, till we get to the next yeah. chapter. Um, <laughs> though even that doesn't opt out the covenant. It just, uh, uh, you know, mandates the punishment described in the covenant. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, that's true. Right. Mm-hmm. If, I mean, if we think of a contract, a covenant is a contract, which fundamentally it's the same word here. Uh, contracts have clauses for what happens when people violate the terms. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Um, e- well, that makes sense. Well, I don't want to get ahead of our discussion, but it will be making it interesting to, to wonder whether God then actually keeps to the covenant or uh, abrogates it. So uh, Orthodox Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, really interesting guy, uh, has a whole theology post-Holocaust which says that the covenant is no longer binding, that that God, God fundamentally broke the contract when the Holocaust happened and therefore mm. the Jews are under no obligation to continue with our terms that, uh, in, in that sense, the, uh, Holocaust, maybe I'm pushing this a little too far, but the Holocaust becomes, uh, the violation of God's terms in the same way that the, uh, uh, golden calf is used as the paradigm for the violation of, uh, the Jews obligations under the contract. Um, that's wild. So what happens to Judaism without Yitz, covenant? Uh, it's funny. In a, in a weird way, Yitz, who's an Orthodox rabbi, uh, ends up at Reform Judaism. He would never say it that way, but uh, which is that it's optional. That it's up to each person uh, to negotiate that contract between themselves and God. Uh, and that the, the collective mm, covenant I, is over. Yeah, I don't. That feels like a fundamental change because we've been talking about Judaism in community terms for quite a while now. Um, and suddenly it's individual. Yeah, terms. right. So it's radical. Uh, but, you know, the Holocaust is radical. And, uh, you know, when you look at studies of Jews, Jews tend to believe in God or at least sort of the, the anthropomorphic God of the Bible huh. at rates much, much lower than almost any other group in the United States. And I don't think you can uh, disconnect that from the Holocaust. In a very real way, when, you know, I have cousins and aunts and uncles and so on and so forth who just don't exist because of the Holocaust uh, and never existed because of the Holocaust, you know, it's hard to still believe in a God who intervenes and saves and acts and cares yeah. If God acts in history, why didn't God act in our history? Yeah. Yeah. You, we're getting a little in the weeds, but there's another famous book uh, by a rabbi named Rubenstein called After Auschwitz. And he argues that after Auschwitz, you are left with three options. If you say God has agency, if God acts in the world and has the ability to act, you're left with option one, which is that uh, God chose not to stop the Holocaust allowed it to happen, Mm -hmm. uh, which Rubenstein says is not tolerable. Uh, that's, that's just not who God is or what God is. Um, the second option is that God was not strong enough to stop the Holocaust. Again, Uh Rubenstein rejects this as being sort of definitionally not God. Uh, in 30 says that God actually caused this, which again, Rubenstein rejects though. Some Jews accept, um, and so what Rubenstein says is after Auschwitz, we are left with a God who does not have agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that certainly rings true to my experience and my own sense of theology. Is God does not have agency. Yeah, that God's fundamentally not like a person in any way. God does not act. So when... When you pray, what are you praying to? Yeah, right. There's the question. Uh, This is actually, uh, we've talked a lot about Maimonides and his guide for the perplexed. That's exactly what the guide for the perplexed is about. If we're going to create this really big God that is everything, that is the underlying truth of the universe about which we can never know anything and about which we can't relate, then what the heck is Uh the point of not eating bacon? 
right? <laughs> or what, what's the point of, uh, 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 as you said, um, uh, I totally forgot your example now. Totally escaped. I'm praying, praying, asking for yes. blessings, you know, uh, right. It becomes a human thing. And so, you know, you get answers like, uh, prayer isn't to change God. Prayer is to change us. Yeah. Um, uh, which isn't always so satisfying. But then, right. Right. I mean, I, once again, we shouldn't get too much in the weeds, but change us to what and for what purpose, <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, I guess we could do, uh, um, you know, God has no hands to work in the world, but ours kind of thing. And, and that is one explanation. And actually that's a very, that's uh, a very deeply Jewish understanding, a mystically Jewish understanding that says that our purpose in creation is to be God's hands in, in the universe. Well, that makes sense. Cause I was quoting, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, who was a, um, uh, what's it called? She was a convert from Judaism and well, her family was in Spain. Oh, so interesting. Conversos. It is not surprising. To, yeah. Conversos. She, she was a converso. So it's not at all surprising to me that she was quoting a Jewish understanding. Uh, you know, um, two thirds, man, we're getting in the weeds here uh, or down rabbit holes. Uh, two thirds of all Spaniards today have identifiable Jewish genetics. I believe it. I believe it. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, these are huge, but really deeply important questions. And this is kind of part of the reason to do this whole podcast is to explore the changing nature of both our faves because they yeah. are changing and we are lost in the wilderness in some significant way as we try to negotiate that change. So, um, you know, it may, it may be a little wheezy, but what else are we here for really than to ask yeah. these questions? Yeah. And I think our listeners who have, uh, been a part of this for a while will recognize your explanation there as a classic apologetic. Ah, <laughs> yes. Yes. The, the apologia of lost yes. in the wilderness. It's a famous genre of podcasting yep. now. Thanks to us. Uh, okay. Anyway. Uh, all right. But that is not the only interesting thing to say about verse 18, the most exciting verse. Um, and, uh, another thing is, uh, to go on and talk about a kind of bridal mysticism that the Torah is a bride given to yes. the people. Yes. So say some stuff about I, that. So bridal mysticism is a big part of Judaism today, particularly actually associated with the Sabbath. Um, there's this whole notion that you get an extra soul on the Sabbath, uh, or an, an extra piece of a soul that, that you are, uh, connected to sort of the divine soul in an extra way, uh, for these 25 hours. Uh, and so the ceremony of Friday night services is understood as a wedding between us and our divine extra soul for the Sabbath. Uh, it's also understood as a wedding uh, between God and the people of Israel at some level. Uh, and then the, the deeply mystical understanding says that when humans left the garden, the divine could not bear to be without its children. Uh, and so the Shekhinah, the uh, uh, ever-present aspect of God, the imminent aspect of God, sometimes translated as the mothering aspect of the divine, um, Sometimes translated as the, the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Yeah, maybe the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Uh, and actually, there's a uh, uh, hair salon near me called Shekinah Hair Salon. Uh, so maybe they do divine work there. Yeah. Yeah, the imminent aspect the imminent of the hair. The imminent aspect of the hair, yes. Uh El works there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. That was good. That was um, anyways, back to this beautiful mystical image here. Uh, it's understood that the mothering aspect of God left and went into the world with its children, with her children, uh, and is there with us throughout throughout the week. And so this divine wedding that happens on Friday night is not just the marriage between Torah and Israel, God and Israel, uh, but is actually a reunification of the divine itself. Wow. That is beautiful. And is that why um, in like Sephardic Judaism, the Son of Sons is said at the Sabbath? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It said right before the beginning of Sabbath services. Um, so it's inviting uh, the imminent nature of the, design, the divine 
to come and, and be reunited. Yeah. Yeah, I don't exactly. know. That right. Exactly. With the rest of the guy. Yeah, you know, the other huh. thing here that I think is interesting is we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the ways that Christianity has been influenced by Judaism. This is an example of the reverse. You can tell that these mystics were in a Christian context because they are thinking through notions of divisions of the divine. Uh, mm-hmm. right. And they're being influenced by Christians who are dealing with the Trinity and how is three actually one and so on and so forth. And, uh, uh, so the Jewish mystics do the same thing as opposed to those Jews who are living in a Muslim context, like Maimonides, who instead are focused on radical, uh, unity of the divine and the impossibility of breaking it up. Wow. That is cool. That, you know, I always say that Christianity is a syncretist religion because it is, you know, because so much in Christianity is taken from the cultures and, and other religions, frankly, that it encountered. It's kind of nice to know that Judaism also has some aspect of syncretism. I, I tend to think it's just humans, right? The, I totally yeah. reject the notion that there is such a thing as uh, authentic origins. Right. Uh, Me too. Yeah, I have this conversation a lot when I'm teaching groups about sort of how the Bible was formed as we know it, right? People like to think, you know, even if they understand that the, the Bible as we have it today uh, has included, you know, human scribes and human authors. And uh, I apologize, it's the Wednesday siren going off, the first Wednesday siren. Yeah, the noon whistle. It's going on there here you go. too. Yep. So. Um, I totally lost my train of thought too. So, uh, yeah, so the the fact that the Bible was uh, not only compiled by different... So people in their heads, I think, think of it like a big telephone game, right? Like that there was an original version. Uh, But I tend to think that everyone tells the story in their own image, and then the next generation tells it in their image. And it's only that we imagine that there was an original story in the past, but that they too, the ancestors were imagining with the original story they too imagined that their ancestors had an original story. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you and I are in total agreement with this about this, but, but we have to pause and say that verse 18 says that this is written by the finger of God. So, uh, you know, people I think might be kind of misunderstanding how scripture is put together, but maybe their misunderstanding is based on what's in scripture Mm -hmm. itself. Though let's not forget that these tablets written by the finger of God don't make it to us. Right. Moses is going to destroy them at the bottom of this mountain. Well, but they kind of do, right? Because we're, we've been hearing about what's on them for, For this whole, for this so whole we hear bit, about it, but if we don't actually have the divine tablets, then everything at some level is a sketch of a sketch. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So this is kind of reporting on what was on the divine tablets. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're doing but, you know a little bit of a postmodern read here, I think. But yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we're you know both you and I, I think, are unapologetic okay. postmodernists. I'd much rather be that than a modernist. Yeah. You know, so. you know, sometimes I'm jealous of the pre-modern, though. Uh, yeah, I guess. I guess. Yeah, I'm also jealous of the of the band, the modern <laughs> lovers. Um, but anyway, okay. Sorry. Uh, okay, so we have this bridal mysticism, but there are different ways of thinking about it. So one of the differences, I think between the bridal mysticism that we're describing, although maybe it's not as big a difference as I began thinking it was, uh, is that in Christian bridal mysticism, the bride is a church, but here the bride is a Torah and the groom is the groom, the people. Uh, Yes. So we can look at some of these. I would say in the vast majority of bridal mysticism or bridal uh, metaphors that are used, uh, the Jewish people are the bride. Um, and there's all sorts of really interesting yeah, okay. work. Uh, there have been some interesting PhD theses looking at the notion of ancient men imagining themselves as women. Right. The people writing these yeah. regime are almost all that, uh, men. Well, you know, we, we arrogantly assume that we invented gender fluidity, but the fact is that I, I think, 
both of our religious traditions have kept alive a certain amount of gender fluidity totally. throughout time. Um, so, yeah, so I'm not at all surprised. I, I mean, I like that kind of PhD thesis that says, um, you know, what was, what, what is the incipient gender fluidity in our, in our religious tradition hmm. and how does it work? Right, so maybe we should look at some of these midrashim. You want to take the first one here? Yeah, let's do it. Sure. Uh, oh, wow. Rabbi I should Shimon say the way that they're getting this, Lake- the, the way that the rabbis are jumping off of this is if you look at the word, uh, when he had concluded, when God had concluded in, uh, verse 18, uh, the Hebrew itself, kechalato, sounds a lot like the word as his bride, kechalato. So they're very similar, and that's okay. why they're using this as an so opportunity to say uh, that they're talking about a bride. Yeah, there's something very punny about, about Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's midrash. a fundamental idea here uh, of Midrash, that it's a jumping-off point, uh, th- those grammatical things. Uh-huh. You know, I, I like to think of Midrash, uh, I imagine sort of a group of people sitting around a table, maybe a, a few whiskeys under their belt, and they're sitting there playing really what's an intellectual game. It's an intellectual exercise where someone says, uh-huh. here's a verse – Here's what I can do with it. Here's what, and someone else jumps in and does the same thing over and over again and one-ups each other. And I think sometimes there's that quality here. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's fun. I I just hope, dear listeners, I hope you realize by now that religion should be fun. Uh, A reflection of the joy that we say that we feel um, in our religious lives. That's, That's what our conversation should be. Okay, anyway, uh, so this is Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, and he said, If one gives a discourse on the Torah, and it is not as pleasant to those who hear it as a bride is pleasing to her spouse, that it were better yeah, that he should not Someone gave a real bad sermon here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> why is that? Because when God gave the Torah to Israel, it was then as dear to them as a bride is to her spouse, and it says, he gave to Moses. Gave it to Moses as a bride. Exactly. As a bride. So, but a pleasing but, bride. A pleasing bride. Um, not, not one of those brides who you kind of wish your parents had just <laughs> stayed at home when they were arranging um, them. Yeah, which, the you know, we, look, this also brings up, and it's important that we not ignore it here, that these are deeply misogynistic, deeply sexist. Uh, notions that we have here, right? These are written by men for men who can only imagine a world in which men are the protagonist of the story. Right, right. Um, and and male concerns are yeah are all in all here. Okay, yeah, there are so, human so concerns and there are women's concerns, okay. right? Just like uh, we talk about uh, health services and women's health services. Are you saying that we also are still a fairly misogynistic uh, perhaps, society? Perhaps. Um, wow. Wow. Uh, I I think I know some people no, on Reddit who would argue no. otherwise. <laughs> uh, but they're probably all too busy talking about infinity <laughs> right now. So we're okay. We're okay for the moment. Uh, all right. So that's reading number one. Why don't you give us a bride number keeps two herself secluded the whole time she is in her father's house, uh, none knowing her and reveals her face only when she's about to enter the bridal chamber. You can feel by the way, that this is coming out of, uh, uh, the Arabian world here, right? The, the whole notion of covering your face and the veil and all of this comes out of the middle East. We, we tend to associate it today as coming out of Islam, but it's, it's actually, there's nothing uh, Islamic about these things. It's older regional customs that were clearly a part of the Jewish world too. Right. Yes. As I said, all religions are syncretist. They borrow uh, from the cultures around them. So anyways, the bride who secludes herself the whole time in her uh, father's house, none knowing her and reveals her face only when she's about to enter the bridal chamber as if she were proclaiming anyone who can testify anything against me, let him come and do so. So must a Torah scholar be as modest as a bride but he must be renowned for his good deeds just as a bride. So you, you can really feel the quality here that, right, the first person said, look at these words, they're like the same thing, and then everyone's trying to one-up the next one of how Torah is like a bride. 
Right, right. Okay, so this is the rabbi sitting around having fun, one saying, it's like a bride, and then everybody wants to pile exactly. on and be like, yes, but yeah, this yeah. way. And it's, it's really like an ancient podcast. Distinction. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, Midrash is an ancient podcast. Oh, I assume funny. in 2,000 years people will be listening okay, to Lost in the uh, Wilderness as well. It's... So the Torah scholar should be modest as a bride. So now it's not just the Torah that's a, a bride. It is the scholar. The scholar takes on, in some yes. ways, the bridal yes. nature. Uh, we have a third one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I, mean, I just had a mental picture of a bunch of Torah scholars <laughs> catching the bouquet. But um, like okay. <laughs> Just as a bride comes to her groom beautiful, bejeweled, and perfumed, so does the Shabbat come to the people of Israel. Uh-huh. So now the yes. Sabbath is the bride. Just as the groom dresses in his finest clothing to receive his bride, so, so does actually the receive the, the Shabbat. Jewish but the Jewish man is both the groom and the bride. Yeah. Yeah, that's really... Wait, really? Shabbat comes to the so, people yeah, of so Israel. The first half of it, though, just as the groom dresses in his finest clothing to receive his bride, we're talking about humans there, and then we flip it. Oh, so, because okay. the Jew yeah, received yeah. 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 Just as the groom is pampered and absolved from working all his nuptial days, so is the Jew. Uh, and this on, is true. Uh, as uh, Jews are exempt from all sorts of the ritual obligations during their honeymoon. So Shabbat then is, yeah, so it's a kind of weekly honeymoon. Um, it's lazing around in bed yeah. with the French windows open. Um, yeah, I mean, you know. Kind you, of paradise. If you do Shabbat in a traditional way, 18 minutes before sundown, you light the candles. You have an incredible meal with lots of singing at the table, and you speak words of Torah at the table. Uh, you go to sleep, hopefully full. Uh you wake up in the morning, you go to the shul, you hear the Torah portion, you come home, you have another big meal with guests and friends and family and, again, local people who are there. Um, it's a, a traditional, again, to sing and to drink. And uh, then everyone takes a nap. Uh, couples who are married are encouraged to do maritally intimate things. Uh, and uh -huh. then you rest and you have board games and you have... Uh, card games, and, and you're just very local. So we have not really talked yet about what goes on at the shul, because it's not like the the priestly sacrifice in any way. So it's mostly meant to be the place where you go to, to hear the Torah portion. Like so there, its, there its are main two purpose. main aspects of Jewish prayer. Synagogue. And we should or say by shul, whichever word you mean. Yeah, actually, my, my six-year-old yeah. turned to me the other day or and said, Daddy, there are a lot of words for temple. I said, yes. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, there are two main, really, types of prayer. Uh, the first is the Shema and its blessings. Uh, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Uh, and extended a series of paragraphs after that, which is really a reflection and a meditation rather than a prayer. Uh, and in, in some ways you can understand the Shemanet's blessings as a meditation on the distance between the person I have been and the person God sees when God looks at me. Um, and we're supposed to do that twice a day because it actually says in, uh, the Torah itself, uh, when you lie down and when you rise up, she'll buy them as a sign upon your hands and upon your mm. doorpost and so on and so forth. Uh, and so you say those in the morning and the evening. Right. And, and no synagogue necessary for that. Like you that can is, do that at home, you but, at you home. know, traditional synagogues have morning prayers and evening prayers where this is done. Uh, then three times a day, and these match up with the uh, uh, times when there were sacrifices. These are meant to take the place of the sacrifices. There is the external prayer, the political prayer, which instead of uh, being about the difference between who I have been and who God sees, it's about what the world is today and the world I am obliged to create. And that you say three times. Uh, and then in addition, three times a week, you read the Torah portion. So three times a week, you say this. Uh, no, no, three times a day in the synagogue. 
three times. Traditionally, a day it's in done the synagogue. Uh, with a quorum of at least ten Jewish adults. Uh, you can do it on your own at home, but it's done in a slightly different way. So, as a rabbi, really, this is like a big part of your week, like you're hanging out at the synagogue. Yes. So all the today, depending on the community, it's often lay led for most of these, uh, just for sort of practicality sake. Okay. But as rabbi, you want to be there, right? Because everybody's... Uh, that is certainly the goal. Uh, you know, I would say, for instance, in a reform community, these don't happen typically except on the Sabbath. Uh, you find an observance of them in the Orthodox community, but there it's only for men. And in the conservative community, oh. uh, where it's deeply egalitarian, uh, they usually have these services you call them minions, uh, but it's almost always pulling teeth to get 10 people there. Uh, you know, my, my community, when I was here in Cincinnati, was 670 families. And it was tough to get 10 people mornings and evenings. Wow. So you would have to make arrangements ahead of time? Like yeah, exactly. And you cajole people. And, uh, you know, the other thing I would say is that Minion ends up being... Uh, Two primary things. The, the first is it is a community for people, uh, particularly morning minion. We would always have a little breakfast afterwards. And so a lot of retirees really found community in the minion and come every day or many days a week. Um, but then the other population that typically makes up the minion uh, are those who have lost a close relative in the last year. And they would come and they would say the special mourner's prayer uh for the 11 months following someone's burial. Um, and so it is both a community of people uh, who are generally looking for community and then a community of people who are mourners and are getting support. Uh, and it's really a powerful thing because everyone there understands, even if they've never met you before, they understand where you are at at some level when you stand up at the end and you say this prayer. Cool. Well, that's as a form of public mourning. That's that's kind of beautiful because you know one of the problems of mourning in America right now is is everyone wants to move away from the conversation as quickly as possible, right? Like they don't they don't want to hear about your continued yeah. for your for your yeah. lost one. Um, but but here we have it ritualized in such a way that it's not only acceptable; it's um, my um, it seems my like best friend just lost his sister and you know, he was talking to me about this, that it went so quickly from being overwhelming that everyone was talking about this constantly to everyone acting like things are normal mm -hmm. and things aren't normal. Right. 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 Yeah. No, they're not going to be not for quite a while, if ever. Yeah. Um, this sounds very humane, like a very humane, uh, way to formulate a, a worshiping yeah. community yeah. to just um, have that built in. I love, I, I love Jewish morning rituals. I think they, they feel very spot on to me. There are these periods. There's the week after you lose someone and there's the month after you lose someone. And then there's the year and then there's the yearly anniversary and all of these, um, you were obliged to be in and all of them you were obliged to move out of. Uh-huh. Eventually. Yeah. So right like for instance, the, uh, the week of Shiva, the seven days after burial, uh, and you don't leave the house. Traditionally, you cover your mirrors, you sit on low stools. It's the week of really intense mourning as well as sort of the shock. Um, and this is a time when, uh, people just come to your house and they're specifically not supposed to ring the doorbell or knock. They just come in, uh, they bring food and they care for you. Uh, and there's all sorts of personal restrictions on behavior during this time. And then you move into what's known as Shloshim, the 30 days, the month. Uh, and during this time, there are also restrictions, though they tend to be things like you don't go to concerts um, and publicly joyous events. And in some ways, there are restrictions, but in many ways, they are um, hall passes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they give you permission to not to not be the life of the party for a while. Yeah. And to not be there and to make it okay that you go to the wedding ceremony and then you just don't have it in you to go to the party afterwards. Right. Um, and, but w one of the interesting things here, and oftentimes this is a conversation I end up having with 
congregants is just as you are obligated to be a part of Shloshim to have these restrictions. So are you obligated to let go of those restrictions at the end of the period? Yeah. See, that's the part where it breaks down for me. Cause I, I think mourning is kind of mysterious and, and, you know, to put a set time frame on it might be a little difficult. So it's not a set time on mourning because actually then there are all sorts of things for the whole year. Um, ah, but okay. it is a set time on your withdrawal from society. Right. Okay. Right. That you, you have to resume life again. Mm-hmm. Um, even when you don't want to, particularly when you don't want to. Uh, and it doesn't mean you're okay. And it doesn't mean you're normal. You're certainly in this year of mourning. I um, mean, longer than that, but, um, it does mean that you have to live life. Choose life as, uh, as it says at the end of Deuteronomy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That this is a Torah of life. Yeah. Okay. All right. Dear Lister as well. We may have, uh, we may have reached the end of the life of this podcast. <laughs> So, uh, so we we will end here. You have been listening to Lost in the Wilderness, which is made possible by a generous grant from uh, Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Um, our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album "All Things Are Being Made New." Uh, I have a plug for the next couple of weeks. I'm, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a visual artist, a painter, and I'm going to be part of a show that opens on May 19th at uh, St. Philip's Church Ooh. in Columbus. So I'm excited for that. And I'm going to come see anyone that. living in Columbus can come. Yeah, if people want to come from Cincinnati, that'd be great. So, uh, do you got any plugs, Daniel? Uh, well, Brianna Kelly, who is the uh, writer of our theme music, is having a release of a new album, uh, and the party will be at Christchurch Cathedral on May 12th. Uh, that's next Saturday night at 730. Uh, I think that, wow. Uh, two Saturday nights, two Saturday nights from now uh, at 730. Yeah. Uh, so you can find that on Facebook. Uh, if you want to RSVP and come to the event, it uh, should be really interesting. Yeah, I would love to go to that, but unfortunately, my daughter is being confirmed on that day. So you know, get your priorities straight. Sometimes a concert, you know. Yeah, well, she likes music, uh, uh, but her in-law, my in-laws, will be in town. I don't think they'll be able to drive us. Yeah. Okay. Uh, enough chitter chatter. Daniel, have a great week. Listeners, have a wonderful week. You too. See you all later. Bye.